Again, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is good to be with you another Tuesday evening, reflecting into the richness of our faith. If you're a faithful listener out there, you know that Tuesday evenings, uh, we focus in on church history, the great Christian thinkers in history, and we're still Still in uh, the early days of Christianity, we are in the Acts of the Apostles. And uh, as you know, I have John O'Hare, a retired educator and parishioner over at St. John the Baptist Catholic Church. John, it is good to have you with me another night. Thank you, Joe. Good to be here. So, John, tonight we have the opportunity to uh, spend some time with the first martyr, St. Stephen. Uh, we're going to uh, discuss the figure of Saul, who we all know, know now as uh, St. Paul, and uh, if time allows, the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. And so what I thought we could do by way of uh, getting this going is just start in Acts 6. So if we have our Bibles out there, if you want to pull out your scripture and go to Acts chapter 6, uh, we are introduced, uh, John, to Stephen in this chapter. So verse 1 reads, now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, the Hellenists murmured against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the body of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, pick out from among you seven men of good repute full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we may appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands upon them. And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. So what's going on here, John? Well, it's first to note that here we have our introduction to the office of the deacon, huh? Uh, if you go down to verse 2, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. That word serve, you know, diakonoi, those list of names that I gave were the first deacons. Uh, certainly, uh, Stephen is, is the one who this chapter focuses on uh, for good reason. He was full of grace and power, pleris caritos, full of grace. I actually have a question for you, Joe. Yeah. These Hellenized Jews, I assume these are Jews who spread from Jerusalem to Alexandria and other various foreign countries, Greek being the language of the Mediterranean area. Yes, yes. That's where they came from, and they may not have spoken Aramaic uh, or Hebrew. They were, they, were, they were speaking Greek, and is that, that, I assume that's where that phrase comes from. Yes, yep, it is. Uh, so, 
Uh, with that, uh, you know, who is Stephen? You know, it, it's interesting. As he's numbered among the diaconoi, and he's been given this conferral of grace. Did you note that? We talked about the laying on of hands last week. Yes. And here we go again, uh, this, this sacramental office to lay on hands. Uh, so these, uh, these hands were laid upon these seven, uh, and in particular Stephen, and he, he begins to preach. Now, what happens in the subsequent verses is really why he was stoned to death. If you go down to verse 11, then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council and set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs which Moses delivered to us. What is Stephen doing? Why did he get in trouble? Well, he was simply doing what Christ himself was doing. If you go back into John, our Lord says, you search the scriptures because in them they bear witness to me. He's showing that the apostles, how he's a new Moses, how he fulfills all of these great Old Testament events, the road to Emmaus. Luke is very specific to show, the same author, right, to show how Christ is talking about how he is a new Moses. This is what Stephen's doing. He is showing how the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the key that unlocks the mystery of salvation history. And they didn't welcome that, John. No, they did not welcome that. <laughs> and so they set up false witnesses against him. Doesn't that story sound familiar? <laughs> The yes. parallels between Stephen and Christ are um, striking, and Luke certainly wants us to see that. And so, in chapter 7, we have this speech to the council that really rehearses covenant history from Genesis into his own generation, highlighting Israel's story of rebellion from to Moses to the law to the prophets and ultimately to the failure to see who Christ is as the Son of God. When you talk about the stoning itself, John, this was a crude means of execution that was prohibited. The mob ultimately was enraged, and uh, as we read in Acts, they took matters into their own hands, uh, literally speaking. And we can say uh, collectively that the stoning uh, Stephen's death was the end result of tensions that escalated from debate to false accusations to an eruption of mob violence. Uh, Luke certainly, as I just noted, parallels Stephen's testimony, uh, his hymn to salvation history, if you will, in, in Acts 7, to that of Jesus Christ. I would say highlighted by this vision of the Son of Man in heaven. How about, John, his prayers to surrender to God, certainly evoking the figure of Christ as Christ himself was there, surrendering himself to his Father, and beautifully, his petition of forgiveness for those who were executing him. There is our, our Lord, Christ, on the cross, you know, praying, you know, Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's a great speech. And Stephen is somewhat new to the faith, a little new. And he gives a great speech. And Christ, during the New Testament, says, 
don't worry about what you're going to say. I'll put word, the Holy Spirit will mm. put words in your mouth. And Stephen exemplifies this beautifully. You know, I mean, the fact that we, we weren't really trained for this specifically, we just go out and we do it. And Stephen, to me, gives a great example. Just go out and try your best. Amen. And certainly, as he was out there preaching and, uh, and bringing people into the fold, there's no question that he was a man of the Holy Spirit. Yes. You know, he, he properly, we call him the proto-martyr, the, the first martyr. And who was it that sent him to his death? Well, he's certainly the enraged mob. Uh, but this is the story, John, where we are introduced to the figure of Saul, right? Uh, if you were to go into the opening verses of chapter 8, we, there he is. There he is. Chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul was consenting to his death. And on that day, a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul laid waste the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Wow. I mean, that's powerful. I read those verses, John, and, and, and that is powerful. You know, Saul's consenting to his death really highlights his role as a figure of authority. There's a great painting of Saul on his horse. He has his, his hand, he's pointing to all the, of the enraged mob, stone him, stone him. And this is, this is the guy that God chooses. It's just so overwhelming to me when I, when I think about it. Now, again, this is the stuff of paradox. Now, about a month ago, John, we were talking about how with the apostles, all of them, you can look at them as this motley crew lot and say, what was God thinking? What was God doing? Well, here again, we have this figure who experiences this dramatic conversion, yet a figure who was a formally schooled. Yes. Who, I mean, this is a man, Saul, who was the prize pupil of one Rabbi Gamaliel that we read of in Acts 5, 30 and following. Who was Rabbi Gamaliel? He was the rabbi of rabbis. Uh, it was said of him, when he died, the glory of the Torah died. Why is all this important, John? Because Saul was his prized pupil. He had the Old Testament on his fingertips because of this man. So, uh, we must remember that Saul had this muscle-bound intellect. He was of Jewish stock, Jewish origin, he spoke Greek and uh, was a Roman citizen. That is correct. He was a Roman citizen thanks to one of his great-great-grandfathers who made excellent tents for Roman generals, gave him the citizenship, and just passed on through the family to, to Paul. Yes. And so why is uh, all of that important? Because uh, you have three major cultures coming together. What better person to select you know, than Saul, a universal man for the universal church? Saul was uh, quite active in the persecution of Christians. He is a man of action. And that same personality keeps with him in later years when he becomes a Christian. The man of action. What changed was the Holy Spirit's effect on him as far as God and Jesus goes. 
Yeah, he was faithful to his strict Jewish Orthodox formation. That ultimately, John saw the movement of Jesus of Nazareth as a risk. If you were to go into 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9 and following, he, he calls this risk of the church of God, right? As, as, as he talks about it. So certainly, uh, he had his reasons, but God's ways are not our ways. And in the end, we have from Acts 9, John, uh, the great conversion of, of Saul. It was a great conversion, yes. And uh, we've all heard it. And um, knocked off his horse or else knocked. Some accounts say he was riding a horse. Some say he was walking. Yeah. But, uh, and, and, and the speech of Christ is quite short. And up he goes, blind, and goes into Damascus. Or he remains blind, and there Ananias is, and Christ speaks to Ananias, and he sounds kind of like Samuel as a boy. Yes. If, you, if you're there, God, I'm listening. Yes. You go to this Nazi guy down the street <laughs> and knock the scales <laughs> yeah, off his yeah, eyes. Yeah, yeah. Me? Yes, yeah. you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we have to appreciate that dynamic there. Like, what are you saying, God? What do you want me to do? That man who wreaked havoc on the Christians, the, that man who, who sent Stephen to his death, what are, you, what are you asking of me? This is ludicrous. What are you saying? This is the stuff of our faith, John. We have to appreciate the paradoxical nature of our faith. Again, remember the word paradox means contrary to expectation. At least some of us, we, we think we have it all figured out. And once we've arrived at that point is, is when we haven't figured it out. Right. You know? Because our God is a God of surprises. It's difficult to imagine, you know, being in Ananias' shoes and, and having this, this, now this call to go to Saul uh, and to minister to him in, in this way. And uh, yeah, what does our Lord say to Saul? It's striking. You persecuted not Stephen, not this Jew, that Jew. You persecuted me. You persecuted me. So when you persecute the Christian, you persecute me. I've always thought those are very strong words, uh, those very specific words from Christ. Just to go back to what you were saying, Saul had a great education, the best of the apostles. He was kind of like the Jewish equivalent of Harvard Law School, and his, yeah. <laughs> his career was set out before him, and suddenly, ba-bang, here he is wearing one garment and walking all over Europe, yeah. um, living from hand to mouth pretty much. Yeah, and that's a nice contemporary image, you know, to kind of grab hold of the significance of this moment. Mm -hmm. um, because, yeah, I mean, these are real figures in, in, in history, John. We've said it once, we could never say it enough. History does not spring forth from non-event. This is an early record of the church. These are eyewitnesses uh, that are recording these events. I mean, if they're, and if they're not eyewitnesses to all the events, certainly there was a very strong oral tradition going on. Uh, we need to hear to these inspired words of God. And so what does then uh, Saul uh, do? Now, Paul, he, he's preaching. And I, I love this from, from Acts uh, 9, John. <laughs> you know, there he is going down to chapter 9, verse 19. Uh, let's see here. For several days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and in the synagogues immediately he proclaimed Jesus, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard, heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called on this name? And he has come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? 
But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews. I love that. And confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. You know, why would God handpick the people that he picks and the apostles and, and Saul? Well, quite simply, John, because when you see a figure like this who experiences such a dramatic conversion, you know it's something other than what is human. It belongs to God. Only God can do this because it's totally nonsense otherwise. How could this man who sent Stephen to his death now be preaching the name of Jesus Christ? The irony is so thick. Here he sends Stephen to his death because of how he was interpreting the Old Testament in light of Christ. And now what is he doing? This is the scholar of scholars. Paul quotes the Old Testament up to 500 times. Why? Because he is doing what Stephen was doing. It's, It's amazing. He's showing how Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of every hope, of every dream, of every person in the Old Testament. And most especially, of course, in the great uh, kings and patriarchs and, and covenant leaders. Uh, this, this stuff is rich, John. It's so striking. Now, how about this? Verse 23. When many days had passed. What's going on there, John? We have a clue if we were to read, what is it, Galatians 1, uh, verses um, 15, 16, 17, 18 there, John. Uh, what we have there is uh, Paul writing to the church of Galatia, and he is uh, talking about his uh, uh, leaving for three years. Can we read some of that? Yeah. Well, I'm going to begin with chapter 1, verse 11. Uh, Brethren, I would have you know that the gospel which was preached by, by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, you have heard of my former life in Judaism. How I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and had called me through his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia, and again I returned to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. Yeah, isn't that striking? You know, we have this idea that Paul, you know, went to the synagogues and, and, and preached, and that he was on fire for God, and he was evangelizing the world and all the rest, and it was done. And certainly verses 19, 20, 21 and following talk about how he immediately went to the synagogue, but he disappeared for a while, and he just tells us for how long. Uh, For three years, as the commentaries speak to how this time period refers to that verse 23 of when many days had passed. So what is he doing? Well, what did we just talk about, John? He had to reconcile this very strict Jewish Orthodox formation with what has been revealed to him, this encounter. You know, Pope Francis has talked about the need for this culture of encounter, and it's so biblical. Our Lord has this very real personal encounter 
with Saul. You persecute Stephen, you persecute me. And so he has to make sense of this. And he goes off for three, three years. That's a long time. You know, we have our conversions in life and we think, well, you know, we, we get up after we've been knocked off our horse and it's, it's all good. You know, I'm, I'm saved. That's great. But it's not over. There's something called gradual transformation. This is why Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, we must pray without ceasing. Because everything that we are, everything that we do must reflect the glory of God. And so, here we have Paul going off for three years to make sense of it all. And then he comes back and he spends 15 days with Peter. 15 days. And what is he doing there? I love the Greek rendering there, John. He's interviewing him. He's interviewing Peter. He's taking notes like a journalist. <laughs> it's so fun. Why? Because he's, he's needing to continue to make more sense of this. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm going to guess that Saul, Paul, knew a lot about you know, There was no New Testament for him to take for three years and read. It hadn't been nope, written. Nope. But he knew the stories. He knew it probably when they were executing Stephen, and he knew more from Ananias and the folks around Damascus. Yes. He knew these stories. Here he has to reconcile this huge... Old Testament with what he's heard and somehow put this together, this contradictory stuff that he knows is true, but how could, anyway. Yeah. It's, life it, is messy, and he, yeah. it was messy for him. <laughs> yeah. Amen, John. I mean, this is, we have to appreciate the practical aspects of, of the early church and how the Holy Spirit was guiding them and how they needed the Holy Spirit to, to navigate these uh, murky waters. Uh, and so this is this is what Paul is doing. You know, so he comes back and and he he begins to write his epistles, John. and, and I mean, uh, for all of his, his epistles and for all of the quotations of the Old Testament, certainly some of that had to be garnered when he was off somewhere and in Arabia. and he began to take those notes. He comes back and he's meeting with Peter and he's he's taking those notes. I mean, once again, though, I can't help but just think of how rich this irony is. I mean, here you once had Saul taking prisoners to Damascus, and now he has become captive to the very person whom he was persecuting. Expect the unexpected. Christ will use anyone. Christ will use anyone. And uh, that's what sacred scripture reminds us for sure. I want to, with our time remaining uh, we won't get to the Council of Jerusalem, John. We'll just spend our whole uh, week next week on the Council of Jerusalem. I want to speak to something that Paul says, because I think it is very, very important as it relates to how we can come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16, Paul says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view, even though we once regarded Christ from a human point of view. We regard him thus no longer. So, from a human point of view, in the manner of the flesh, we can come to know by external criteria. Through a physical encounter, we get to know features, characteristics, um, how maybe someone speaks, moves, and so on. You may be able to describe him, but you do not know the essence of the person. That encounter must go deeper, right? Uh, and this is what Paul is after, in many of his epistles. He wants us to know there's this external criteria, but there's also this internal criteria. 
You know, I'd like to, you know, use the analogy of, say, an apple. <laughs> you know, I can tell you, John, to describe an apple to me, and you would look at the outside of the apple, and you would tell me about its shape, its contours, uh, maybe, the, that it, maybe that it has a stem, it's green, uh, and then I can tell someone who's right next to you to take that apple and tell me about that apple, but take a bite into it first, and then have them describe what they encountered. And their description of the apple is going to be very different than your description of the apple. One is based upon an external criteria, what you see. The other is a much more dynamic encounter with the essence of the apple, its taste, its flavor, its juiciness how soft it is. You can begin to explain that, but not really, not like the one who actually bites the apple. And so what Paul wants us to see is that, yeah, we can talk about the law and, and, and what we see on the outside, but as a reflection of his own personal encounter with Christ, it's much more than what is external. It's about this new internal criteria that God has given us this gift in the Holy Spirit that allows us, that empowers us, John, to cry, Abba, Father. And with that gift, with that power of the Holy Spirit, we have a new criteria, and that criteria is the interior life, that dialogue, that relationship. That's what Paul is after. Because the great theme of all of Paul's epistles are about how we are a new creation in Christ. We have been raised in Christ anew. We are in Easter season, John. And as Colossians 3.10 reminds us, we must put on the cloth of Christ, the garment of Christ. And we do this first by entering into this relationship with Jesus Christ. This is what it's about. And it's really, you have to just imagine what he must have been thinking about from if he in fact was knocked off his horse to his, his, his time in the desert, um, to his time in the synagogues, that in the end, in the end, it's about this new law, this gift of being empowered to cry, Abba, Father, and what that means for us. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, oh, they can talk their heads off about the law, but did they get it? No. And Saul knows this because he was rooted in that same formation. This is different. This is different. And this is the essence of Paul. Let us close in prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you. You've been listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening from 6.30 to 7 p.m. right here on KKXX. If you have questions or feedback, you may email Joe at jholljmj at yahoo.com. For a copy of today's program, visit joeholcraft.org or call KKXX during regular business hours at 894-7325. Thanks for listening to the Seeds of Truth on KKXX.